Mike, for your tech help here today. We are here for our second session, and I look forward to this. We're going to do a very fast uh, review of the first session, and then I want to have some discussion time with you as much as you want to participate with the article that I had encouraged you to read. We'll ask you for some insights that maybe you drew from the article. We can talk about it, as well as maybe a few questions you have. And then we'll move into the session two material for today. So, by way of review, we looked at two models last week. We looked at a personal change model, and we looked at these eight workaholics. And what was important for me to stress to you is that the same behavior can arise from different kinds of heart motivations. And so we talked about those different heart motivations. And I gave you the uh, eight examples there. I won't repeat all those because it's not an exhaustive list. We could come up with probably a dozen of different kinds of individual idiosyncratic idiosyncrasies uh, that are specific to the individual person here. Uh, What is important, then, is that we can bring hope in the midst of the heart change that's needed, and we looked at a couple passages of Scripture, you might remember Joel 2, God is the one who brings chastening on his people, and he calls for this wholehearted, this full-hearted repentance, rip your heart, tear your heart, and yet we saw that that is a display of grace, and it's in the midst of the grace of God that we can turn to him. And then we saw from Hebrews 4... Christ as our high priest, and we can go to him, and the call there is for us to go to him and find, you remember the two kinds of grace I tried to stress from Hebrews 4.16, that all of us need and everyone that we minister to needs? What were they? Forgiving grace and the enabling grace, we can also call that empowering, we can also call that sufficient grace, and just as an example of that, or sustaining grace. As an example of that, I think of those people that I've worked with who have had a horrible life and have had terrible pressures upon them and still have high heat and hardships. And the very fact that they continue to trust in Jesus at all, that's sustaining grace. You know, I just remember one of my, uh, one of my mentors illustrating it this way, that, that some people are following Christ and they're running after Christ. And some people are just walking or even crawling, and we ought to celebrate that. And some people, they're hardly moving at all, if at all, but at least they're facing the right direction. And and I I think of people like that. Well, we gave the visual model, and we'll come back to this again in a more specific way in a later session. But uh, just remember how we drew that there, started with the heat, hardships, pressures upon us. We also said there are good things that God allows into our world. And, uh, he, but However, they can, be, they can become occasions for turning away from the Lord. We talked about the bad fruit, bad words and actions and emotions. Or we can also think here of omissions. I fail to do the right thing. God wants us instead to be fruitful, to do the right thing to cease doing the wrong thing, to put off and put on corresponding 
godly behavior. We said that each of these, according to the scriptures, we looked at Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life, or, or out of it flow the issues of life. Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, it's what comes out. Out of the heart come these things. For out of the overflow of the mouth, of the heart rather, the mouth speaks. And so you see those two contrasting hearts producing two contrasting forms of of behavior. We also said this is what Galatians 5 is all about. The fruit of the spirit passage and the works of the flesh. The answer is then the intervening work of God in Jesus Christ. The cross here standing for God and all his provisions for us in Christ. And that includes uh, the truths of his word primarily. But I also want to make sure that you realize it includes the body of Christ. It includes the people of God. It includes uh, not just pastors, but one another's, you all, sitting here today. And uh, God's Spirit then takes these provisions and applies them to the heart, helping us to move on the diagram from left to right. Uh, The Christian is a hybrid right now. We are in between the times, so to speak. We are not what we once were, which would be a pure thorn bush on the left. And we are not what, what we one day will be. When he returns, we will be like him. We will be a pure fruit tree on the right side. In the middle here, at this point, all of us in this room are, are moving progressively from left to right. And biblical counseling, biblical shepherding has a huge emphasis on the progressive growth within a person. We said that all this is under the sovereignty of God, the sovereign, wise, and good God oversees all these things. He is both over us, transcendent, and yet has come to us in Christ. And so you see both the triangle at the top representing God as well as the cross representing God's uh, intervention. is is the incarnation of Jesus and the work that he does and the spirit does for us. And so I'll just uh, put this up here on the screen just to remind you. I don't need to go over this anymore. And then another way to capture the exact same material. It's just another format of the same material. And uh, one of the values of this is it might be easier for you if you use this as a tool to write you can actually write on, on this uh, three-tree model. You can draw this in the box version, perhaps a little easier there. But you see again at the top, you've got the heat as well as the dew. Then you have the bad fruit uh, coming from a, um, a bad heart, bad roots. And then you have the good fruit coming from the good roots. And the bottom of that, the foundation here, and the way this is constructed is These are the provisions in Christ. And what I do when I'm thinking about a person or when I use this for my own self-counseling is to list in that box for the key truths that I need or that the particular person I'm working with needs. What are the key truths? And I want to make sure I've got a couple passages in there. And who's a key player? Who's the... Who are the friends? Who are the pastors? Who are the provisions in that sense? that God has given to help this person. 
and if there's a, a good book that I think would really help that person, then I, I will you know, put that in there as well, saying here's a resource that would help. So that's kind of an overview of how we look at the change process moving from uh, left to right in our model. And even again, if I said this with the tree, let me do it this way. There's a sense in which uh, what I'm doing is I often will meet with someone and I'll hear about their hardship. That's what you're going to tend to hear. And then you're going to try to be moving basically this kind of direction. <coughs> I'm sorry to hear this hardship you're facing. How are you handling that? And then leading down into what, what is it that you're, it's driving you here? What is it that you're hoping for? What are you living for? Where is the disappointments particularly? What does God say about all that? How can this renewed heart be a heart that wants to please the Lord now, that wants to learn to trust Him, that is going to seek contentment in the midst of discontentment? The discontentment is producing the grumbling and, and all that. Um, Instead of then discontent, instead of discontentment producing grumbling, learning contentment, the process of learning contentment, then produces thankfulness. It produces <laughs> repentance from the critical heart that I have, the whining that's going on in my world, going on in my heart. Okay, let me just see if you have a question on any of that, because we, you know, we've said a lot, and then I'm going to move into the personal ministry model here in just a moment by way of review. Clear? Okay. So, what kind of ministry are we talking about? We said three things. We said we're looking at here Bible-based instruction. Now, I'm distinguishing that from actually preaching. I'm even distinguishing that from a Bible study, because a Bible study can be this. But we may not always be pulling out our Bible and opening up the text and reading a verse to someone. We may be conveying to them biblical wisdom, the fruit of our study, as long as it's biblical truth, biblically based. By members, not just pastors, remember we spent some time walking through a list of a dozen or ten or so verses of Scripture, all of which say the ministry is done by the believer, none of which in those texts actually include the pastor. Now, as a pastor, and I know the pastors here would agree with everything I'm saying at this point, we are called to, to do these things as pastors. But not only us as pastors, the members, the body of Christ. And then the third thing, we said, and didn't develop this, but hopefully this is somewhat intuitive from your knowledge of your Bible, and from being in the church here, that all these actions of ministry to other people are always coming from the work of Christ in your heart, the empowering, enabling grace of Christ in your heart, driving you to want to serve. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus becomes the model for how we serve other people because he has come and served us in that ultimate way by laying down his life. Well, then we began the overview of the model and looked at this passage in Matthew 9, Jesus going through the cities, the towns, the villages, entering... Uh, entering the person's world, entering their world, in this case individualizing, entering his world, 
the, the world of the suffering person. This is our model. Uh, understanding the person's needs, both the real needs as well as the felt needs. What are they thinking that they need? What are their... What is, what is their the, uh, um, uh, interpretation of their life? And then how do we bring a, a different interpretation? And then bringing Jesus and his answers. And we'll dig into step one today. That's our plan for this morning. And then I gave you some homework to do. And the passages under point two we'll get to. The Welch book, I'm not going to say anything about it today. I'm going to give you some more chapters to read. What we'll do the next time is we'll have some time to talk about the first six chapters, see what questions or comments you have. We won't spend a lot of time on that. I am regarding that as some, somewhat optional for you. Uh, I'd love for all of you to read it. It's not long, but I don't want to uh, require that or feel like you can't come if you haven't read the Welch book. Do come whether you've read the Welch book or not. But the first one we want to uh, pause on, so here we're in session two. Let me go to that now. The appendix there that had that article, a big picture process for personal personal ministry. I want to see what insights you have there. What questions did you have? The first Two-thirds, three-quarters of the article is uh, a written summary of the big picture process, the three steps, enter, understand, bring. I'll be developing all that here in the Saturday mornings together. The, the end of the article has a brief case study of a woman that I've uh, used the pseudonym of Jenny for. So let me see what insights, what was helpful, what you said, mm, that's something that I need to understand better as I work with people, and, and, and what questions you have, and you can do either, we won't go in you know, order here, questions or insights, yes, please. I have a question about Jenny here, uh, and I think as I've gotten older I can sort of see how many times the pushback is part of the, is part of the process. If you will, you know how you, you, you confronted her with some facts and and some truths, and then she she goes the opposite direction. It looks like, um, and so perhaps leading us through, like you know, how does that how does that timeline work? Maybe some encouragement with regard to that sort of part of the process, because many times I think we want to we want to just just. We're presenting the truth. Oh, this should lead logically, rationally, <coughs> right to this end, and it does the opposite. And yet, it is toward hopefully that end. So, it's yeah. Can you speak to that dynamic? Yeah, I think that's a great question. If I can kind of encapsulate it this way, especially for the recording. Um, what do you do? You you've shared truth with per. You think you understand what the person uh, needs. You have a rapport, you share truth, and as in the case of Jenny here, the initial sharing of truth, she seems to have respond not only not responded to it, but almost gone the um, gone the opposite direction, kind of pulled away from that a little bit. Um, 
Before we do there, I, I think that uh, one of the biggest things I need to say is patience. Uh, I didn't spend that many sessions with, with Jenny, but I was prepared to spend more as needed. So I do think patience is going to be the big picture answer. I think particularly recognizing that when I plant a seed of truth with someone, this seed of truth may be so counter to everything they have thus far experienced and believed that this really is a major paradigm shift, a major way of life shift for this person. And they are recoiling against it and fighting against it. But here's the, I really want to use the seed imagery there because I do think that if the Spirit of God is working in the person, if the person's a Christian, that eventually that seed will germinate and begin to produce growth and change within that person. I, I, need, to, I need to recognize how much of a major change this particular truth might be and even expect some resistance, I think, in most cases there. Uh, you share those truths. Jenny, what are you, what are you thinking? Uh, I don't know. Okay. All right. What are you really thinking? <laughs> and, you know, in fact, Jenny, I, I would expect that what I just share with you is probably uh, a different way to look at life. And, in fact, I would expect that this would be so um, seismic changing within you that you may, you may even recoil. I, in other words, I want to give them some permission. I don't want them to recoil. Obviously, I want them to embrace and go forward, right? Run after the Lord. But it's important for me as a counselor to make sure that I give them the freedom to express their recoiling to me. I, I want them to... Uh, see, I'm not their Lord. I'm, I'm coming next to them. I want to sit next to Jenny and envision this path for her together. So here's Jenny, here's me, and here's the path. Wow, Jenny, this would be a very hard path for you, wouldn't it? This is totally different than what you've been thinking about. But I think this is where God wants you to go, and I can help you get there. That's some of the mindset I try to bring, I think, when that happens. Insights? Questions? What was helpful? Um, yes, please. I appreciated the difference between a felt need and a true need. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. self-applicable self as well. The difference between a true need and a, and a, and a felt feeling, need. Yeah, sure. Is, yeah. Sure. You know, the, one of, uh, probably one of the easiest ways just to illustrate that distinction is here's a lonely person. And their felt need is for more friends, more horizontal level friends, you know, people. And what often is true, the real need, is finding a true relationship with Christ, where that becomes the real sufficiency. Not that humans are not important in the, in the mix, but there's often a craving for human approval, human support. And the real need is, is renewing that relationship with Jesus, and that tends to change the way we deal with all our relationships with people. Mm -hmm. 
Um, well, I mean, that kind of brought me to my question, which was, um, I think understanding someone's true mood is the hardest thing for me. Like, I can get their background and all that, but to, you know, like with the example of the eight workaholics, like, do you have questions? Do you have a certain way that you go mm-hmm. to get get that level of depth? Yeah, so how do we discern the true need? Are there questions that can get us there? Uh, some of us can probably do pretty good to understand the felt needs and listen and all that, but how do we go from there? Now, I'm going to punt on that and say we're going to get to that more when we talk to ministry step number two, but a brief answer to that would be, yes, wise questions that are going to move toward the heart. So not just facts of what you're thinking or feeling, but what is it that you're believing about this thing? What is it that you're wanting? Beliefs and motives of the heart. We'll, have, we'll talk about some, some questions that get us there. The Welch book will help you as well, side by side. Good, what else? So I came away from reading this that uh, it's multidimensional in the sense that I just can't have a discussion with someone and then try to fix it in that one session. And that's, to me, I look at something and say, okay, this is what we need to do for my past experience and so forth. But there are steps to this process, and it's it's work, and it's it's actually love-based. Yes. Right? So yes. Um, I have a colleague at work who who is a single parent now who deals with a lot of issues. And I want to approach it as I want to fix it, and you should be able to do this. But it's deeper than that. And that's what I'm getting out of just having read that. Yeah, let me, let me try to summarize what you're saying. I, I, yeah, yes, I like everything you're saying. That this ministry process is not simple, quick, not something that you typically can do with one meeting with a person. We want to establish that to be true. We also want to um, recognize that there are a lot of facets to people. Um, there's even contradictions and confusion within them. And so even what they might present to us at any given time we meet with them, we talk with them the next day and they might be bringing different aspects out. Or they may not have given us the full story the first time. They're just, just testing us. And so that's going to be part of the need for, 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 for process there. When you talk about single parents, that's an area that I have a lot of interest in. I'll bypass that for now, um, other than to say this is really important. So if that's the impression you drew from that, I think that's a good thing. I, yeah, I would I want to say good. I think that's what we do need to draw from this. <clears throat> we can uh, easily want to have a quick fix for people. Now, and that doesn't mean that you don't plant a, a truth right away in the first session, but even there, you just want to be a little tentative um, and be able to come back to that, that truth again. Let me interact with you on one aspect of Jenny's story. If you go to the third paragraph where it says, furthermore, of the Jenny story, since Jenny was confused and unstable in her faith, after a very simple gospel hope, Christ forgives, God is sovereign, Christ's spirit can empower her. The body of Christ will help her 
With all this, I communicate my commitment to help her find and implement God's answers for her life. Now, I noted here that uh, the commitments of the body of Christ can help her. She was very unconnected to the body of Christ. In fact, how this situation came to me, she was actually attending another church where uh, my friend was a pastor, and my friend's a solid pastor. But she wasn't connecting there in the church well, and he felt a little frustration about how to really help her, so he didn't feel as confident or didn't have maybe as much experience or training in counseling. So he asked me if I would work with her, and I agreed. And so we kind of kind of team worked with her, although the pastor was not in the room, but we did keep in connection. And she knew that. She knew I was working with her pastor. Um, but she was very connect, disconnected to the body of Christ. Why might someone like Jenny, based on what you know about Jenny, be disconnected to the body of Christ? Guilt, shame. She's got a lot of that. Guilt and shame. Yeah. I mean, her, her past... And, and the church she's attending is a, is a solid church. You know, you, some people who have a lot of guilt and shame can feel more comfortable in maybe a more liberal church, right, where, where holiness is not talked about. And so that's going to, that was kind of hard for her, her past failure. Uh, how, how many people do you know, including yourself here, but I'm not asking for a show of hands, who have committed sexual sin? And who feel clean. But one of the things that I have found is in, in folks who have been involved with whatever kind of sexual sin, it can range, um, including homosexual sins or um, all sorts of kinds of sexual sins, that even when they come to the place of feeling forgiven or believing God has forgiven me, sometimes they'll say, Do you, feel, do you believe God's? Yes, I do. Do you feel clean? And that's a different question for that person. And, you know, I mean, some of us maybe read our Bible, we say, uh, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. We, forgiveness and, clean, and cleansing are synonymous. But for the person who has committed um, a sexual past, particularly, um, those are not synonyms. There's actually a kind of distinction to be made here. So she felt dirty. In that sense... Uh, unclean to go into the assembly of the righteous and the, the holiness of, of, the, of the church assembly. There. But what else might be going on here? Disconnected to the body. The body might not be quite so keen to connect. <laughs> yes. That could, that could take several forms. The body might not be so keen to connect, someone said. Uh, that could take forms of she's just not one of us. And she's kind of on the outcast. Uh, she's, she's not in the inner circle there. Or the church can say, we don't want you here. The church will kind of cut her off. Particularly if she persists in some level of, of sin. Because uh, she did not discontinue all sexual involvement after session one. This, this was a bit of a process there and that's not to discount what my church your church I and I think all of you would be committed to a Christ-centered church discipline process but not at this stage not with this particular person what else might be going on that would keep her somewhat un unconnected 
There's a couple other factors, I would say. She's busy. Yeah, yeah she's busy. I don't know if, again, I won't ask for a show of hands, but any of you who are single moms? Um, probably not many single moms are here this morning <clears throat> because you've got a thousand other things to do. And uh, just, just a word on, on ministering to single moms. The single most important thing that's helped me in talking, at least initially, to a single mom in the first time or two I might sit down and meet with them is, is this one simple thing. Walk me through, hour by hour, your 24-7 week. Help me understand what that's like. Because when I've done that, I've been like, my jaw drops. This person has zero time for all the things that I take for granted, having a co-parent, uh, i.e. my spouse, you know, who's, uh, my wife who's been great with our kids. Um, she's just very, very busy. Let me mention a couple other things. Uh, no support from her boyfriend. Also, it's not clear that she's really a Christian. I'm not sure her heart wants to be with the people of God. It's not clear. And then add one other thing here. This whole pride, competitive, unwillingness to submit to others. She was not one who was ready to say, oh, oh, Pastor Bob, yes, what do you want me to do this week? No, she was her own, she was her own dog, okay? She was like, she's going to run her life the way she wants it to be run, thank you. Um, so that, that was all a factor. It, it takes a degree of submission to be an active part of the body of Christ. And, and well, it should. I mean, it's, that's part of what true humility in, involves. So she wasn't there yet. doesn't even take submission to take counsel. Yeah. yeah, it does. It does. Yes. I mean, she was willing. I guess she, she felt enough uh, frustration with her relationship with her boyfriend that she sought counseling. Uh, but even there, as you read the rest of the article, the, the counseling became um, a test of wills and a submission issue for her. Last thing I'll emphasize from the article, next to the last paragraph, as Jenny did this in progressive, practical ways, she found new liberty in Christ. Her diminishing drive to prove herself freed her to admit her failures, repent of her manipulative actions, let go of the dating relationship, and take wise steps toward Scott. Uh, letting go of the dating relationship, i.e., viewing Scott now as a uh, co-parent, but not as a romantic boyfriend. How am I going to learn to co-parent with them? Because I did not want her to, to marry Scott. I didn't want them to go further in that relationship, because she's somewhat trying to follow the Lord, and Scott had no interest. This would be an unbeliever, a woman, a Christian woman, or wanting to be a Christian woman, uh, marrying an unbeliever, I, I discourage that. But well, I guess the word I want to hit here is the word liberty. Uh, sin enslaves. And I, I encourage you to think about the broader truths of the gospel message of liberty. Liberty, uh, if the if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Galatians 5, the liberty that we have in Christ. And this might help you when you're trying to help a friend who seems resistant. And their understanding of what you're trying to do, their understanding of your ministry towards that person 
is you're trying to get them to obey, you're trying to force them to follow the Lord. And they can tend to look at that negatively. I look at Christ-centered ministry as the most free, liberating, life-giving thing for this person who's enslaved to sin. And I want to, I just have to, again, we use the word paradigm shift, the whole shift of mentality. I want to help the person see that the ultimate goal of the gospel is going to be not holiness, not, uh, is, is joy. Not, not apart from holiness, of course, lining up with God, but joy and freedom. And these are the words I want to keep holding out to this person. This will motivate me to want to help this person because I do want them to enjoy, enjoy Christ find the liberty that he has purchased for for them. Okay, yes, please. So, um, we used earlier, you used the words be patient. Um, and this person has a streak of resistance, um, which I can relate to. So, how many, how many sessions would you have... In, had with someone like this before you are presenting to them an answer that says, I want you to leave the relationship you're in and pursue a, a relationship with Christ. Because that's a big and I'm guessing that wouldn't be in the first session. <laughs> Nor right. would it be the first thing you'd suggest. Right. So I'm just trying to understand maybe a, a little bit of progression. Yeah, yeah it's a great question. Uh, What's the progression? What's the timing? We're not telling the person in the first session to break this relationship. We're not telling them to find... Well, we are telling them to find Jesus, but we're not going to be you know, pressuring them. We're, we're still building relationship. What's the progression here? In this particular case, I, I spent about um, six to eight sessions with, with her until we saw some real breakthrough there. Sometimes it could be longer than that. Um... Um, losing a thought. Yeah. So, summarize the first part of your question again, if you would. Um. So, the, the, the crux of it is simply that um, uh, submission is the first most important act in that process. Um, because after that, everything else makes sense. And without that, nothing makes sense, I would think, to the person receiving the counsel. So I, I'm kind of I was just kind of looking for what might have been the progression okay. of, okay, of suggestions that. that would lead someone to the to to being able to discuss the final thing. Okay, good, good. So I have an end goal for her. I've derived that end goal. Well, I come to I come to any person before I even met her with a basic end goal of what I want to see people do, right? Follow Christ and all that that entails. As I see where she's at, I begin to, in the first session or two, discern what are the specific, um, what is the, the, the specific end goal and some of the specific steps to get her there. And at that point, what I'm looking for is, is movement. Now, if I believe that I've had a session with some good counsel and we come back the next time and there's no movement at all, I'll basically hit it the same thing again, maybe different language, encourage, try to manifest patience, etc. And I might do that for a couple times. But there might come a point where I see no movement, I believe that I've shared the things that are needed, 
At that point, I might say something like, um, tell you what, why don't we give this a couple weeks? Why don't you spend some time in the next couple weeks reviewing the things we've talked about? Again, I want to maybe just bring another resource that's basically trying to say the same thing. Another passage of scripture or maybe some kind of resource, some article or book or something. And, and give it a little time. Give time for the Spirit to work. Because if we keep meeting and there's no movement, it can be discouraging to her, discouraging to me. And so I don't mind stretching things out a little bit there. Now, when I'm not meeting, it doesn't mean I'm not you know, sending an email or a text during the week. How are things going? Just praying for you today. But we might spread out the meetings uh, until we see some more movement happening. And eventually, if there's no movement, then depends on your, depends on her situation. Uh, if they're coming to me from outside the church, you know, the counseling will just end, it'll just die off. If it's a friend within the church, you're just going to have to continue um, indefinitely loving that person, unless there's some serious sins that do need to be addressed. Where and that's where you're going to bring in some others, and you're you're moving along. Steps of uh, restorative discipline. Yeah. Yes. So, <clears throat> my question um, is more the aspect of counseling and ministering in a relationship where I'm the younger person and the person that is coming to me with issues is kind of the authority figure in my life. How, what contact, like, it's very confusing, and when you share, it's like it's not received because it's this person that you've listened to your whole life and who raised you. So I am thinking of parent-child. What insight, advice do you have to get that? <laughs> yeah, how do you counsel your own parents or other folks who are an authority over you or have been authority? I realize we're adults now, but still there is that... Authority in the past, there's the honor command that continues, you know, until until you die. Uh, what does that look like there? I, obviously, that's very difficult. And here is here is the beauty and the need for the body of Christ, because I'm not sure you're the best person to do that. Uh, ideally, it would be better if others, who are peers or, or authorities in that other person's life, or at least peers, were the ones who are coming alongside. <laughs> And that might be one of the things, the best ministries we do would be to encourage that person to, to talk with someone. But having said all that, let me get back to the crux of your question there. Can you have that ministry? I, I think you can. I think it's going to be a lot more uh, um, respectful. Paul tells um, Timothy to do not rebuke an older person. Um, paraphrasing some of you can quote it maybe don't rebuke an older person harshly but the implication is you have to minister to the older person Timothy and don't let anyone look down on you because you're young and so I, I would take that to heart there is a way and if it's mom or dad you, you say mom or dad I, I just want to share with you I have a concern for you and I, I wonder if you're willing to let me share something with you maybe you're going to ask for more permission and all that if they're coming to you and whining and complaining about something, at some point to be able to say, how can I help you? Well, 
how would you like me to help you? Because you're, you're sharing a lot of struggles that you're having, or you and you and dad, or you and mom are having, or you and whoever you're, you're talking to are having. Um, I, I have some thoughts, but as your daughter, as your son, it's a little awkward for me. But I'd love to share those anyway, if you'll let me. So, uh, and here we all need courage. The Spirit of God emboldened me, because this could be awkward. Please. Um, how do we deal with people in today's church that kind of uh, recognize because of their past experiences uh, that their their sin is going to get them into trouble, so consequently they refuse to join the church. Mm-hmm. They come to church, they're there and you're talking to them and you're communicating with them and you're and you're but you realize over time that they're resisting joining because they know they would have to deal with issues in their lives. Ah, good question, yes. So how do we deal with those situations where someone's attending a church regularly, they're conscious of some things in their past, and let me expand that to include maybe some things even right now that they're doing, uh, going on in their world, and they know if they join the church, that's going to come out, their level of accountability will be increased. Um... I guess, I guess two things. Let's, let's make sure, as best as any of us can be, that our churches are churches that understand what we're talking about on the Saturday mornings, that change is a process, that growth can take time, that acceptance, which is what will hit pretty hard today, uh, is a vital requirement for truly ministering to people. Because we don't want to be a church that has the quick reputa- the reputation of quickly confronting and, and disciplining there. I think the second thing is, yeah, there's going to be a, a risk of joining the church. And you have to somehow communicate that. If, if the person says to you, I don't know if I want to join because there's areas of my life, and say, well, here's the problem. You're, you're in a dilemma. Because it's in the life of the church that some of those issues in your life can be dealt with. We can help you. If you remain on the periphery where you are right now, you're safer in your own mind, but the struggles are still there, and we really can't help you. So let me grant you, my friend, that, yes, there's a risk. But I have found, and here's your testimony, is vital, folks. I have found that our church is a place where once those things do come out, they can be lovingly dealt with in a good way, in a helpful way. And I, th- I like to assume that your, your church leaders would concur with this point. The, the, the discipline issues in the scripture are, are always based on the hardness of heart or unwillingness to address things. It's not the nature of the sin itself. There can be some really bad sins in our past, and even in our present, that as long as there's some level of willingness to deal with those things, we can make wonderful progress, and we're not talking about discipline or removal or anything like that. Yes, please. You're just thinking of a situation, it's an analogy where... The friend didn't want to go to the doctor, was feeling something, but just didn't want to go, yeah. didn't want to find out, didn't want to deal with it. Yeah. If it's going to the doctor, would expose it. And 
That's a, that's a really good analogy. Hopefully that can work with the person we're talking about. The, the analogy of uh, going to a doctor to deal with something that you know is there. And uh, the doctor can help you. I always want to remind people when they tell me they've got some kind of medical problem or I know I need to go to the doctor but I don't want to go. Um, we'll say, well, well then don't go. Don't go to the doctor, or I need to go to the hospital. Don't go to the hospital. If you don't want to go, don't go. And go and let that thing grow within you, that mass, or let the surgery go unattended, and just go ahead and suffer the consequences. In other words, the doctor is a place, the hospital, going to a doctor, this is a good thing. Your medical problem is the bad thing. And so back to the analogy... Whatever you're struggling with, obviously, is is haunting you, and it's weighing you down. And we are like a, a hospital. We're like a doctor. We can help you. And and we'll, I will pray, I will be, use the best possible bedside manner with you, my brother, my sister, okay, to be really gentle and caring. All right, let's uh, jump into this session two formally now. And I want to talk about first the goals we have in this step one. This is entering the person's world. What are we trying to accomplish as we move toward this particular person? Step one. And our goal here is to build a warm, welcoming relationship. A godly relationship. And all that the Bible would teach us about relational dynamics. Now you notice I put those dot, dot, dot. what's called an ellipsis there, because this is going to be one long sentence. Why do I want to build a warm, welcoming, godly relationship? So people will like me. Well, no, not ultimately. So that the person will learn to trust me. The person will gain some hope. Not so people will adore us and think we're special, but so that we can serve the greater purpose, which then in turn, finishing this long sentence, so that you can lead him to a saving, if the person's not a Christian, or a growing relationship, if the person is a Christian, with Jesus Christ. Said differently, I want to provide an atmosphere in my relationship with the person, in which the Holy Spirit can most easily open up the significant issues of the person's life. I don't want to be a blockade. So uh, a soil where, where growth can occur, an atmosphere of trust and safety where the Spirit can most easily deal with the heart issues of the person, Now, just stop and think for a moment about what I have there in your notes. You're this way. You are not going to open up your life to someone that you don't trust. You're not going to spill your guts to people that you don't sense are warm towards you. And so we need to connect before we would be able to correct Two biblical analogies that have helped me. And let me credit Paul Tripp with these biblical analogies. 
Um, you know what? And that, that slide got inserted before I wanted it. Here we, here's where I want to be. Two biblical models. Again, analogies. And having these in mind will help you to move towards people. These have helped me a lot. These are very practical for me. They're going to sound semi-theological and abstract, but trust me, they're very, uh, very practical for me. The first is God's plan of redemption. And as I've written there for you, God accepts us as we are in Christ to transform us into what he wants us to be. God's plan to change our lives doesn't start with him trying to change our behavior. It starts with acceptance. Now, it's an acceptance, as Paul Tripp writes in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, it's an acceptance with an agenda. It's not merely, I accept you, but it's that I accept you so that I can be for you an instrument of growth and change and help in your life. I love the way Romans 15.7 puts it. Accept one another, then. Just as in Christ, God accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Chapter 14 and 15 of Romans is dealing with a pretty serious problem in the Church of Rome. A problem of divisions, primarily between Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians. And the whole two chapters is devoted to that, that theme and this is one of those, those concluding, or small conclusions throughout the chapters you have in verse 7. You notice the word then. Here's the point that Paul's been making in chapter 14 and 15. And that is, you have been accepted by God. Christ is your judge, not each other. Therefore, learn to not be the judge of other people and to accept one another. Why? Even that has a purpose, right? to bring praise to God, so that Jews and Gentiles together with one voice, that's what the context is about, with one voice will proclaim the glories of God. You know, I just as an aside about the book of Romans, we tend in our Reformed theological world to look at letters like Romans and Galatians as theological treatises. As one day Paul sat down, sat down and wanted to write his, his great theological work, his magnum opus is what you would call this, the great work of someone's life. And Romans is the magnum opus of Paul, and, and this is the great theological work. Now, without denying it's a great theological work, let's remember, it's a pastoral letter to a church that's having problems. Just like Galatians, it wasn't written as a theological abstract. It's not like someone at Southeastern Seminary is going to sit down and write a new theology because the people of God need a little more academic knowledge. It's No, there's a real problem going on in the Church of Rome, and, and Paul is going after that. And, and, so, and we have to remember that when we read the, the letters of the New Testament here. Okay, let me give you a wonderful illustration of this. Again, coming from Paul Tripp, and, and uh, if you've read some of his books, you might have seen this in one of his writings. So this has really been helpful to me. Okay, I am a house owner, and next door to my house, there is a house that is dilapidated. It is falling down. It is messed up all over. 
when you get up close, you look and you even pull back weeds there, you see huge cracks in the foundation. You say, this house is in bad trouble. You step back a little bit and you see that the siding is popping off. You see that there's windows there that are broken and needing to be replaced. Surely there's, there's no one living in this house. And then you, you step back further and you get further away and you can even see that the roof has shingles off. There's shingles on the ground and this, this house is a total disaster. You have all the knowledge all the money and all the heavy equipment to totally repair the, the house. You're not going to destroy it. That's the scenario I'm giving you here. What's the first step you're going to do to be able to fix that house? Permission. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Your permission. Determine everything it needs. Have I used this illustration ever here? No, obviously you do have the answer. <laughs> you all have the answer. Here's what most people say. A couple of you said this, but the louder voices said something different. Here's what most people say at this point. You've got to You've got to start at the foundation. And that would make a lot of sense. You start at the foundation. And so I say, okay, great. So I bring in the heavy equipment, and they start digging around the house. And as they do, a car comes up with a swirling light. Out of the car comes a uniformed man and says, uh, Mr. Jones, what are you doing? And I say, what do you mean what I'm doing? Okay, look at this house. It's in total mess. It needs to be totally redone. And he says, well, who gave you permission to do that? What we need to do is we need to buy the house. Now, I hope the illustration becomes apparent. What has Christ done? He looks at me and says, that guy's life is messed up. He's going nowhere. He's uh, self-righteous, self-centered. He's got no direction in life. He's not living for me. This guy needs to be changed. What does he do? Change me from the outside? Tell me what to do? No. He buys me. He owns me. And so there's a sense here of what, what God does in redemption is he looks at us in our sin and he buys us. He owns us. And he moves into us. And now he starts the work and change. Again, these are analogies. All analogies are going to fall short. But the analogy here is, is that what we're doing is we're granting that kind of initial acceptance. We're giving a kind of analogy of justification, uh, of, of um, acceptance. And don't be afraid of that word acceptance. Go back to the Westminster Confessions and Catechism and Justification. The word acceptance is there. And I think this is a good translation in Romans 15 7 as well. I know that the world can water down the word acceptance. doesn't mean we have to water it down. It's a good word. It's worth retaining there. <coughs> and so this is what Jesus says to you. He says to me, he says to the people we're ministering to, 
you have problems. In fact, you have major problems. Your problems are so serious that I can't fix them from afar. The only way I can fix them is to come into your life, take over your life, and invade your life, and change you. There's a sense in which I'm saying that to the person. I want to give you acceptance so that I can begin to be an instrument to help you grow and change. Okay, so again, acceptance with agenda, as Paul Tripp would put it in his Instruments book. There's several other passages here that have to do with the second point. Sorry, I need to get to the second point. And that's Christ's incarnation. This is the other analogy. And I've deliberately used for this first step in my model, enter, thinking of the incarnation. Uh, so the incarnation itself is going to be a model. Now, and here we can think about John 1, the word, word became flesh and dwelt among us, lived among us, all sorts of things about incarnation. But let me get it more into Christ's actual relationship with people. Look at the text I've listed for you, the Matthew 11. Luke 15. You see that he's uh, being criticized in both those passages for both he and his disciples get criticized for their involvement with these, quote, sinners there. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Jesus, I'll let you read it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, leaving riches, leaving privileges at the right hand of the Father to enter into our world becoming poor physically and in, in one sense spiritually, in one sense spiritually, of course he always had his perfect relationship with the Father, but living among sin and, and the temptations all around him. Why? So that through his poverty we might become rich, we might have those great provisions. And then Hebrews chapter 2, let me, let me take you there and then we'll... Uh, We'll do a break. I want you to look at Hebrews 2. The great theme of the book of Hebrews being the call of the Lord to continue on with Christ in the new covenant, the new priest, to not revert back to the old way. In chapter 1, it talks about the superiority of Jesus. Christ to the angels. That theme goes on into chapter 2. You look at verse 5. Uh, it is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. And the, the picture here then is in Psalm 8. Verse 6 says this. There's a place where someone has testified. Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. Uh, you made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. This humanity, I think, is, is what's referenced here. The end of verse 8. In putting everything under him, or humanity under them, God left nothing 
that is not subject to him or subject subjected unto humanity. So, so up to this point, this is what's going on. The writer of Hebrews is remembering from Psalm 8 this glorious picture of humanity. It's glorious. And now you come to the middle of verse 8. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. What's he saying? Psalm 8 says there's a glorious humanity. I don't see it. I don't get it. It ain't so. I don't see it. That's not the world I live in. Psalm 8 has not been fulfilled. It's not been realized. It's not the way human life functions in this glorious way. Ah, but there's an answer, verse 9. But we do see Jesus, one display of humanity, one specimen, the human par excellence, the great model. He fulfills Psalm 8. He's made lower than the angels. He's crowned with glory and honor. How? The end of verse 9. Because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death, death for everyone. Verse 10. Now here's God's plan. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, notice back to verse 7, crown them with glory and honor. This vision of Psalm 8, how is it going to be fulfilled? It's not happening now. Here's how it's going to get fulfilled. Verse 9, there's this Jesus. Verse 10, to fulfill this, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through what he suffered. Suffering and then glory. Now, verse 11. Both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers or brothers and sisters. And then he proceeds to string together three Old Testament passages, all of which explicitly or in the context of them have a family metaphor going on. They're Jesus our brother, God is our father, uh, I am the children God has given me. I am one of the children. And so the important thing to get in verse 11 through 13 here is the familial family, I didn't say familiar, familial family relationship that Jesus has with us. Verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, we're talking about human children, How's he going to be the? How's he going to lead them to glory? He has to be a human too. He too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of sin, a power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those. Love that word, free again. Who uh, those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, 
verse 17. He had to be made like them. Had to be made like them. Fully human in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. I'll pause there just for a moment. Look over to chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, 1. Every high priest is selected from among the people as appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. The high priest had to be human to be able to uh, represent humanity to God. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Keep your finger there for a moment and go to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, in every way. That phrase is important, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Tempted in every way. Verse 17 says, For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way. Exact same language there. What's the point that I'm trying to make? That Christ humbled himself by entering our world, taking on our flesh. In doing this, he identifies with our experience. In doing this, he becomes like us. In doing this, doing this he feels our pain. He tastes our hardships and struggles. The result, in verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We have a Savior that we can say, based on this passage, and particularly based on chapter 4, 15, that we can say, understands our struggles therefore can help us. And let me draw one other implication. Therefore, we are also drawn to him. There's a famous Spurgeon sermon, and he doesn't always handle the text the way uh, we train people at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary to handle the text. But nevertheless, his theological truth is, is superb. But he, one of his Christmas sermons has this theme to it. Jesus born as a baby. He says this, Men might fear coming to a great king, but who would fear coming to a little baby? And there's a sense here, I think, where Spurgeon's right on at this point, right? There's a sense in which Christ is approachable because he understands our humanity. What does that have to do with counseling, and why is that an analogy? Well, I think it's, it's this, that... A person will be drawn to me when they sense that I understand their world. That I am trying to share 
in their life that I am trying to enter in and feel and experience what they're going through. When I show that I'm essentially no different and essentially no better now. You know, I'm not married to Mary. John is. I'm not. And I don't work at this place. Okay, We all obviously have tons of differences. But at the bottom line is, I too face pressures and responsibilities, just as Jesus faced a lot of pressures and responsibilities in his world. To the degree that I am different from the person I'm trying to serve, to that degree it will be difficult for me to sympathize. But it will also be difficult for that person to trust me or want to come to me or um, let me into his or her world. And so the redemption and the incarnation become models. Let me give you a quote from church historian Thomas Oden in his book on pastoral counsel. This really emphasized this incarnation. Then I think we'll go ahead and take a, take a break. Uh, it's a section called God's Own Empathic, Empathic Understanding. Tom Oden writes, It has been early and consistently recognized in the pastoral tradition that there is a similarity between God's engagement in human suffering and our efforts at empathy with the suffering neighbor. Much of the energy of empathic engagement in the classic pastoral tradition has come from the special dynamic of the comparison of God's care and human care. The incarnation was viewed, uh, viewed by the pastoral tradition, as the overarching pattern of the willingness of God to enter fully into our human situation of alienation and suffering. God's self-giving incarnate love calls for energetic human response. For entering the situation of suffering of the neighbors, uh, for entering the situation of suffering of the neighbors to redeem, show mercy, heal, and transform, so as to manifest Christ's love amid the world. The incarnation becomes that great model historically for Christians and Christian leaders to be able to enter and minister to people. Okay, why don't we take a break and then uh, take a 10 minute break. After that, we will walk through the relational qualities that I think are crucial to be able to enter into the world of people. 10 minutes. That's not blasphemous. Anyway, that's the kind of spirit that I want to encourage you to develop and want to help cultivate here. So, Christ-like relational qualities now for effective ministry. I want to start with these three questions that helpies consider. And you could have written these questions if I had sat down with you and tried to lead you and interview you a little bit here. I think these are questions you would ask. Do you care about me? Are you going to open your life to someone that you don't think cares? No. Can I trust you? Will you open your life to someone that might blab the content of your conversation? And can you help me? 
Am I talking to a wall here? Am I talking to a child? Or am I talking to someone who might have some wisdom and some kind of skill? So I have found these questions to be invaluable to assess where I'm at as a, a friend, as a minister, as a servant of the Lord, and also to encourage you today. So the person wants to know that you care. They want to know that you're going to be trustworthy and not great confidences, and that you can help in some way. Now, there are two passages of Scripture that are are somewhat uh, formative for us, I think, here. And there's a lot of overlap between these two, so let's just pause, let me read them, and then I want to pull out from them nine or ten, whatever our number is, of qualities that I think are important for us to be, able to, en- to be able to enter someone's world and to do so with care and trust and with the uh, ability to help. Colossians 3, <clears throat> Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, just another example of the way the apostles here base their call to change, which is the next part of that verse. Uh, they base that call to change on the work that God has already done for them in Christ. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with, and now there's these five qualities listed, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Thirteen, bear with each other, so we can add forbearance, a word that we don't use as much in our day, but it's worth uh, trying to retain and recover forbearing. Bearing with each other, and forgiving whatever grievances you may have against one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is probably the first verse of Scripture that I try to have uh, couples or even two friends or roommates or any relational counseling I would do probably never counseled someone relationally in the last couple of relationship issues in the last couple of years where they haven't been asked to memorize and reflect a lot on Colossians 3.12. Just giving this, even in this first session I meet with someone, just laying this out as the vision. What would your marriage be like? What would your family life be like? What would your relationship with your children be like if it was marked by compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience? That's a good starting place for your prayers. Uh, when I ask a couple to to talk, you guys need to sit down and talk about this issue. But before you do, I want you to read aloud uh, Colossians 3.12 and have that open Bible or you know, print it out on a big card and have it sitting right there as you begin your conversation about this difficult matter, about how you're going to handle this situation in your life. And then, of course, we're well familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, I suspect, which has nothing to do with romance, only indirectly. Someone in this room, surely a room this size, had that printed on your wedding program. And it's okay. I'm not trying to you know, say you can't do that. But here's what, you know, I think I said this to you last time, that every time we take a text sort of out of its context, we commit two errors, not one. We make it say what it doesn't say hey, this is foundational for any good marriage, I grant that. But we also don't let it say what it does say. 
And I want to say to you, this passage belongs in the life of the church even more than your wedding day. Because this is what's going on in the Corinthian church. They're having all sorts of conflicts with each other. Love is patient. Love is kind. I'm going to pause right there. English and Greek have some differences here. The Greek text that Paul wrote here, all those words are verbs. We do not have a verb to patience. We don't have a verb to kind someone. So we put in what we call here a helping verb. You remember is back in our schooling. Any school teachers here? I should include homeschool teachers as well, right? Their hands are go up here. Um, one of the things I learned from my favorite English professor, June Hagen, at the King's College, and I majored in history, minored in English, but in hindsight, I almost wish I had majored in English. I so much loved English. Here's what she taught us about great poetry, and those of you who are English teachers uh, will, will, will agree, I'm sure. The power of great poetry always lies in, lies in the verbs, not the adjectives. We always think flowery adjectives. But no, it's always the verb that carries the power. And to me, there's always something a little lame, a little wimpy about the way we have to do this in English. Love is patience, is patient. Patient is kind of this abstract quality, an adjectival description. Instead of saying, you know what? Love patiences people. It makes no sense in English, but do you get my point? Mm -hmm. This is an active action of patience, of showing patience. So I guess we could translate it, love shows patience or whatever. Same thing with the word kind. These are all verbs. Even the, well, I'll just keep reading. It does not envy, it's verb. It does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude. It, it, it doesn't rude itself. It is not self-seeking. It doesn't seek its own. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. So as I pull those passages together, out of those passages come these nine or so ingredients. First, compassion. I have suggested you a kind of working definition for compassion. That inward, I think we have to really make sure we're thinking about our guts now, our, in, our insides, these emotions. Our inward, deeply felt emotional response to the plight of a suffering person. Coupled with a desire to alleviate that suffering. Now, alleviate it where possible. All of us have entered into some level of feeling compassion towards people that we just can't fix the problem. And I've said things, you know, if I could change your life, I'd do it for you. If I could, if I could rewrite your life, I'd rewrite your past. But, you know, God has chosen not to. God has chosen to allow you to have this kind of past and all its problems and struggles. You know. um, <coughs> So, compassion sees, sorry, compassion sees the suffering, feels the suffering, and seeks to alleviate the suffering. 
to what are we to respond compassionately? And the obvious answer is the person's situation. That's what we think when we think of compassion. The suffering that they faced. What's been done to them. I find myself saying things like this. I'm sorry to hear about this. This is not the way God designed your life to be. Not the way it's supposed to be is, is a book title. That is a, a wonderful summary of sin, of uh, the, the effect of sin on, on, the, on the world. Not the way it's supposed to be. I'm so sorry to hear this. I've inserted into your notes a, a box there that shows our Lord's compassion. I've taken the Greek word for compassion and traced its uses in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It doesn't appear, I don't think, in John. But I've taken those, and I have studied those, and I've tried to put some kind of categorization for them. And so you see, for example, in Matthew 9, when he saw the crowds, this is the passage we building our model on. He had compassion on them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so here Jesus manifesting compassion towards people without a shepherd. People with disabilities. This is the men who are blind. Matthew 20, 34. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. These are, again, two blind men. Compassion because of blindness, but also because of the raw treatment that the crowds gave them toward diseased people. This is some kind of uh, skin disease going on. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out to out his hand and touched the man. He touched the man who had a skin disease, prohibited, of course, by the law of Moses. Well, I won't go through each of those and if you find those helpful categorizations, feel free to use that. I was asked uh, years ago when I lived in West Virginia to, to speak in the chapel of a Christian, uh, Christian school, Christian uh, middle school, high school thing. And I said yes. And I said, well, you know, what, 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 how can I help you all? What, what, how can I best serve you? And you know, we're finding there's just a lot of anger and judgment among the kids. And I said, let's not a little study. How about if I do that? And so I shared that with them. Um, the last one there is not Jesus directly, but it's the son of the prodigal. I'm sorry, the father of the prodigal son. How his father saw the son and was filled with compassion, ran to him, threw his arms around him and kissed him. So that's the obvious thing, a person's situation. Here's the less obvious one. And here's where we really have to consider our view of sin. How about responding compassionately to someone's sin? Now that'll stretch our categories here. Um, Nehemiah chapter 9. This is a startling passage in my opinion. The passage here is narrating the history. And these are the, the Israel, these are the Levites. 
And here's the history that they narrate of Israel. Back to the golden calf episode is what's referenced here in verse 16 and following. They, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked. And in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate. Or your version might say merciful. Gracious and compassionate, gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding to love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Verse 19, because of your great compassion, or again, your version might say mercies, you did not abandon them in the desert. And you can read on through the rest of the chapter there and see the similar responses of God. Slow to anger, forgiving, gracious and compassionate toward people who've sinned. So, I find it easy to be compassionate when someone has been sinned against. When they've been abused and mistreated. Is there any kind of compassion you have when someone comes to you and shares their sin? Do you, do you feel, do you see, and do you feel inside your heart stir, uh, stirred up? How's Paul put it in 2 Corinthians? have this one in my notes, but I was just reading this recently. 2 Corinthians 10, is it? No, it's 11. 2 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. How do you cultivate compassion across the Christ? How did God treat you? Here's a thought that I find emerges from Matthew 18, 21-35, the great passage on the forgiveness of sins. No one, if you're taking notes, this would be worth writing down, no one has sinned against me as much as I have sinned against God. Once that enters your bloodstream, not just as a notion, but real truly controls you. It affects the way you're going to look at other people who mistreated you or other people who have sinned. Even if it's not against you, just people who have sinned. Number two, kindness. Dealing gently with people. Treating the person you're trying to serve as a fragile, I was going to say fragile vase, but let's make it more a fragile vase. Okay. <laughs> you, you feel the difference between a vase and a vase? 
I remember being at a counseling conference with a pastor friend of mine. We were sitting together listening to a speaker who talked about how important it is as a counselor for us to, to, treat, to treat people delicately, like fine china, he said, like a vase, Ming Dynasty, year whatever, century whatever B.C., Ming Dynasty. So he began to call his wife my Ming thing. <laughs> it worked. It, actually, she felt special. Um, this is uh, not laying into the person. Let me be really concrete with things like this. Your schedule. Can you flex your schedule to meet with that person? Um, person needs child care to meet with you. Do you think he could offer you know, to pay for that or, or at least try to line it up? Now, I'm not saying the patterns are ongoing. I'm certainly not saying where they're abusing the situation. But can there be some displays of kindness towards that other person that can, can really help? I have the privilege of serving um, sometimes in other settings. I, I, I've been in Brazil a lot. I am treated so very, very kindly by some of the Brazil, by many of the Brazilian Christians there. I used to think it's just because I was like the guest speaker kind of guy. I've come to see they treat each other that way with great kindness. Uh, sometimes I feel like I can learn from international believers a lot more than I know right now. Thirdly, humility. I've included a very important passage of scripture, very important in my thinking. Luke 18. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. So I, I mentioned this the other day, our last time we were together. The connection I said you'll see between self-righteousness and judgmentalism and how they are going to breed each other. This is going to lead to that. This is going to flow from that. Here's what you see in this passage. Jesus tells the story. I think you're familiar with it. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the tax collector. The Pharisee stood up by himself and prayed, God, I thank you. They're not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, even like this tax collector. And you know the rest of the story. The passage tells us, in something that would be very surprising to the original hearer, that not the religious leader guy, but the <coughs> sinner is the one who's justified before God. Now, we, don't, we can't read that story that way anymore because we already know the Pharisees are bad guys when we open our Bibles, right? But in that day, uh, this would have been a stunning story for Jesus to tell. I want to focus on verse 11 for a moment. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. And here's, here's what I want to say on this, and again, this is one that I hope you can take home with and digest and think about. Based on verse 11, the only thing worse than being a robber, evildoer, or adulterer is being proud that you're not a robber, evildoer, and adulterer. Do you believe that? I had the opportunity this week to be part of the Biblical Counseling Conference in Louisville, Kentucky. 
the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors Annual Conference. It's a group that was formerly known as the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors. We've changed our name. We've been with them for a while. And I had an opportunity to, to speak um, to the whole assembly. I was, had an opportunity for some of the actual plenary speaker. The theme was about homosexuality of the conference. The particular topic assigned to me is was com, uh, compassion, care, and counsel for families that had been broken by homosexuality. Where a son or a daughter has come out of the closet, so to speak, and has um, announced their, that they're gay. And uh, one of the situations I was envisioning is the various kinds of responses that parents can make upon this discovery. And here's the one that I think I'd be concerned about. This kind of, of anger or judgmentalism. And I do want to say this. The only thing worse than being a homosexual is, I believe, being proud that you're not one. A feeling a kind of superiority that I'm better than that person. What I didn't say in the conference is I, I needed to run it by someone before I would say this to 2,000 people. It was a well-attended conference. Was the only thing worse than celebrating gay pride would be celebrating an anti-gay pride. I wanted to run that by someone. I don't know if you know the name Rosaria Butterfield. You know that name? Mm-hmm. That's a very powerful book. Her books, plural. Her third one is just coming out uh, right now. Uh, I believe that because that would be an example of a sin that I would find personally pretty repulsive, and you know, just where my heart tends to be that way. Other sins should repulse me, and they don't. That one would be, but I have to ask myself: Am I really feeling better than that person? Because I'll tell you this, you will not be effectively, you're not going to be able to effectively minister to someone who struggles with same-sex attractions or all sorts of other sins, particularly the ones that are, I was going to say our culture, but not anymore, but our, 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 our church culture would just find very repulsive sins. There's acceptable sins and there's unacceptable. That would be in the unacceptable category, right? Workaholism, acceptable sin, uh, you know, unless it's your spouse. Um, humility. I, I'm no better than you. And let me say it a little further. Not only am I no better than you, I know that I'm no better than you, and you know that I'm no better than you. How do I convey that to you? Because I can believe that all I want. But if I'm sending off the vibes that I am better than you, then you're not you're going to feel that you're not going to be able to come to me because I'm going to judge you. So humility. Number four. I didn't give you that. Here we go. Number four. Gentleness. Now here I'll just alert you to the text of scripture I've listed. Someone has said that the only place where Jesus self-describes his state of heart 
is this verse in Scripture. I'm not sure that's true, but I haven't found counterexamples, so it probably is someone I trusted. For I am gentle and humble in heart. 2 Corinthians 10. Fruit of the Spirit, verse 23 there. Galatians 6, restore that person gently. <coughs> we were gentle among you, 1 Thessalonians 2. 2 Timothy 2, don't quarrel. Be kind, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him must gently instruct. This word gentle keeps appearing. Just a word to us as men. If your working definition or working understanding of masculinity does not include at its heart a component of gentleness, then I would suggest that your view of masculinity is sub-Christian. Jesus describes himself, unless we're ready to demasculinize, is that a word? Emasculate Christ Jesus and make him a non-man. Gentle and humble of heart, his description. And, you know, we, we know how tough Paul can be in places. But his self-descriptions here, as well as what Timothy needs to be all about. And Timothy is in a hard situation. You know, gentleness is not opposed to boldness and firmness. Patience, forbearance, forgiveness. I just think as a counselor how important these things become. We talked about a little bit earlier in the Q&A time that people don't change as quickly as we want. Learning to be patient when the person cancels, which will happen. The person doesn't read the passage you wanted him or her to read. They don't do the homework. And here's, I think, the problem that we as Christians have. And I think we who are committed to a biblical counseling model have. Here's the problem. There's two things that a Christ-centered biblical counselor has that I don't think others would have. Number one, I really care about you and I really want you to change. Number two, I know the answers. They're here. And because I really want you to change, because I really love you, I'm not just doing this some out of some duty because I, Christ has changed my heart I want to love you and serve you and help you because I believe that because these are the answers you know what I'm tempted to do? <coughs> hit him over the head hit him over the head or, or open your mouth wide I'm going to shove this down your throat why? because I want you to change A and B this is the answer you need this come on let me give it to you I'm not uncaring I want you to change I have truth. It's, it's not relative. Oh, well, what do you want to be? Or what, what does the latest research say about this or that? Or what does Joe Psychologist here so say? Oh, I've got truth. So open your mouth and shut it down. That's why forgiveness, I mean, patience, forbearance is so vital. Forbearance, you're going to learn to put up with a lot. Forgiveness, counselees will offend you. And uh, 
One time they don't show up, that's a slight. The second time they don't show up, that's an offense. 1 Corinthians 13, 5, love keeps no record of wrongs. Uh, respect. Respect. People are not sins on two legs. They're not just walking embodiments of sin, they're people. Um, I don't counsel alcoholics. I don't counsel adulterers. I counsel Joe, who drinks too much. And uh, Sandy, who cheated on her husband. See the difference? We counsel people, right? We respect their, their views. We say things like, thank you for sharing this with me. I, I know this is taking some courage for you to share that with me. Um, what, what, what do you think God would want you to do? I'm communicating respect. You're, you're an intelligent human being. I'm, I'm conveying that to you. Even to the point of, you know, we've met several times. How do you think it's going? How, how can I help you better? Now, that's risky. You open yourself up to say, well, you can do this better, Bob. Respect. And treating older people as older people and showing respect according to age or, or position. <laughs> as you minister to people older than you, is that what you mean? <laughs> guys get a brownie a star for sitting up front here too <laughs> protection trust here I want to think of this as, as bi-directional two directions there's a sense in which I convey trust to the person I decide to trust the person I make a conscious decision to trust the person unless contradictory information emerges and if that were to happen, then I tentatively and humbly inquire. So I'm, I'm, a little, I'm a little uncertain about something here. A couple weeks ago, I thought you might have said this to me. and Now I, I'm hearing you say this. Can you help me understand what's going on there? Now, notice what I said. I'm trying to deliberately model this. Now, I, I thought I heard you say this. Not last week you said this. I'm not a perfect memory. I'm not a perfect memory. I don't have a video today. So, let's, I think you said this, and now I think you're saying this, and I'm confused. Not, you're contradicting yourself. I'm confused. Can you help me understand? Now, I love teaching you all today because most of you are old enough to know the character I'm about to mention, whereas my 20-something-year-old students at Southeastern don't know who... My favorite detective is Columbo. Columbo was perfect at what I just said, right? There's just this one thing I don't understand. Oh, by the way, one more thing. There was this humble, and, and the, the theme for me of Columbo, and I don't know if anyone's ever done like a master's thesis on this, but I think they could. The theme for me of Columbo episodes is always the way 
his humble approach gives the bad guy an overconfidence. He despises Colombo, and he lets the door open, and he, he falls because of his arrogance every time, the bad guy. And uh, that's what we're talking about here. This, 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 I just, I'm not sure I understand, but I, I want to believe you. So I believe what the person says unless there's contradictory evidence. But I also want to do things to invite the trust. So, so here the direction goes a different way. I'm inviting and encouraging the person to trust me. I gave you some sub-points in your notes there. Being honest about your qualifications, experience. Now this is aimed a little bit more towards uh, formal counseling. I, I, I grant that. But, but even there, you're not coming across as the expert on marriage. And being honest about even your availability. If you don't have time to meet regularly with a person, then, then don't commit yourself to that. Keeping your promises. Um, I will, I'll call you this week. How many times have you told someone you call them or email them or whatever and you fail? Mm-hmm. Or I'll, I'll get that article to you. Or I've got an article I'll, I'll bring to you next week and then you forget. Um, a lot of other examples there. Being honest about your failures. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I failed to bring that article. I told you I'd call you this week. I'm sorry, I failed to call you. Please forgive me for that. Confidentiality. I'm committed to your best. What we discuss stays between us. Unless there's a biblical reason why something needs to be disclosed. Um, one of the good, good maxims here, one of the good mottos, Peacemaker Ministries uh, stresses this. We keep things as private as possible for as long as possible. If no one else needs to know, then no one else will know. Right? If they don't need to know now, they don't need to know now. So, uh, this is not blanket confidentiality. So let me warn you, and I, my, my guess is that uh, you, this is not the first time you've heard this. Someone comes to you and says, I want to share something with you, but you have to promise to tell no one. I don't think you should ever make that promise. I think what you should say is, I will do the best I can, but there's a possibility that I'll be in a situation where I might have to say something. So if you tell me you're about to kill yourself or kill your husband or kill your child, you know, I'm not, I'm not your Catholic priest. This isn't a confessional group. So I'm sorry I can't make that promise to you, but I will do all that I can you know, unless, you know, unless I have to share something with someone. And I'll be prepared to give you some more examples if we need it. So I think you want to be careful on that. (coughs) Particularly in in a lay role. Mm -hmm. This this happens, right? You've probably been in that been in that awkward situation where someone has done that and you've given that confidentiality. Now you find this problem is mushrooming or other people involved, there's other details. Or the person shares that they're struggling with lustful thoughts towards someone. Well, then it ends up turning into adultery. And now the marriage is about to be destroyed. 
hope. There's a lot we can say here on hope. Let me do it quickly. I'm going to take you about 10 minutes over. You have to leave, I understand. You've got a late start. Um, I'm going to take us a little bit further here. I do want to walk through these. I'll just be a little quicker and we can talk more about them next time. Then I've got to give you your assignment for next week. Hope. Huge thing all over the Bible. And one of the beautiful things about biblical counseling as I've studied over the years is that it's a, it's a major theme. We really do have hope and we can give hope to people. So how do we do that? All sorts of ways here. Point the person of God and his provisions. So I've listed for you a bunch of key passages. Also there's an appendix that has a list of short verses that are all Christ-centered. I forget the number on that. I want to call it Appendix 2, but that might not be accurate. If someone pulls that up. Is it 2? Appendix 2. Gives you just a bunch of very short verses, concise, gospel-filled text of Scripture. And this is the first point deliberately, and this is the most important thing I can say, because our our greatest task is connecting the person to God at the end of the day. It's not fixing their problems. It's connecting them to God, and from there, letting God use you ongoingly to help the person. But the, the connection to God is the most important thing in giving hope. But there's a few more I'll mention. Remind the person that growth is progressive. Some people want to change overnight. One of my mentors used to say, if a person has taken 10 years to develop his alcohol addiction, it might take 10 years to undo it. That sounds kind of hopeless. But it's not hopeless when the person hits year five, and they are making progress, but it's not done yet. They're not completely over this. They still struggle. Then it's a very hopeful point. We do want to see movement. Progressive sanctification implies that um, there will be some sin that remains. First uh, John 3 says this, When we see him, what does it say? We will be like him. Have you ever thought about the corollary that flows from that? Until we see him, what? We will not be fully like him at least. Now we can become increasingly like him but will not be fully like him until he returns. And so the person who thinks that by going to you and sharing their problems and formal or informal counseling, you're going to be able to fix them that quickly, it's probably not going to happen. But we are looking for growth and movement. Thirdly, learning to share your um, personal testimony. I've given you some guidelines there. Be careful that you don't let your testimony um, take over. That's what I really want to mean by be brief. You've been on the other end of this. You share your story, and the person interrupts your story and gets into their story. And so what, what I don't like to do 
with a person, particularly in the first session or two, is to give a long testimony. What I like to do, if there's something that I think my life might relate to their life in some way, where our lives like kind of map onto each other, let's say for me, growing up without a dad in the home. I might say something in session one or two with that person who grew up without a dad. I might say, you know, I, I just want to encourage you. I know God has done great things in my life, even without a dad growing up. And at some point, we could talk about that, if that might be helpful. Um, but tell me more about your situation. So just sort of planting, maybe giving a little hope that way. Now, if they want to say, tell me more, well, then that's fine. But I'm not going to say, okay, now let me tell you my story. Because I really haven't heard their story yet. I really need to get to know them. Know what's going on there. Um, the last bullet on that one, make God the hero. Make the focus Godward. At the end of the day, it wasn't your wisdom and discipline, your smarts. I mean, Christian growth is a cooperation. You do have to work out your salvation. But even there, giving the praise to God. And the, the Lord helped me to open my life to a person. Instead of me saying, you know, I, I, I saw this problem in my life, and I went and talked to my pastor. How about saying, the Lord, the Lord helped me to see the need to go talk to my pastor. Or the Lord led me to this passage, instead of saying, I found this passage. Because, really, it was the Lord who led you there. You might think you found it, but he's also the one guiding your, your steps. Uh, ditto with letter D, which is not your personal testimony, but the testimony of others. God's work in Bible characters. And I'm sure if we had more time, we could generate a list just in this room, given the um, maturity of many of you, would generate a whole list of characters in the Bible and how the Lord used them, has used them in people's lives. Moses, Paul, Peter, Joseph, in the book of Genesis, the temptations he faced and the hardships he underwent and how the Lord was with him. Job and Mrs. Job, <laughs> contrast there. Caleb, David. Providing practical, whoops, how did I get to that? Oh, no. Okay, we'll get there. Sorry, folks. Oh, my. We're going to be a while. I hit end accidentally. There's probably a way to get there quicker. Almost there. There we are. Provide practical resources. I don't know what's currently in your building here. I'm sure there are resources somewhere. Are there? And uh, I have found that not only in our buildings, my building or where I used to pastor, but just my own house, we've made sure we have some key booklets, particularly those uh, booklets produced by PNR or New Growth Press. They're the ones that are my favorites. Sermon tapes. 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 Little <laughs> <laughs> ribbon things. <laughs> Go online. You got sermons. There might be a sermon from Pastor Tom in the last couple months that wow, this was really good. Particularly if it addressed a common counseling problem. 
Why don't you just make a note of that? A year from now, I don't know how long you've got those archived, but however long you, you say, you know, there was a sermon that, that Pastor Tom gave that dealt with some fear issues. Why don't you go back to that? Why don't you read that? I want you to listen to that this week. God's purposes and trials. Uh, just listed it for you. There's a book that I've done. I don't know if you all have it here. Um, seven, the, the seven things listed there are all what the book that is about. Number eight, assure him of hope. So let me give you my favorite Walmart commercial. I don't think it's on anymore. This was years ago. But as soon as I saw it, I said, I need that. So I can describe it for you. It featured the Walmart greeters. And so the, the cameras would pan on the different greeters and they would say something. In other words, Walmart is a very friendly place to come. Right? I love one of the, the, the spots there. The camera focused on this older gentleman, Walmart greeter. He says this. If you come in here without a smile... I will give you one of mine. And as soon as I heard that, I said, that's what hope is about. If you come to me for counseling without hope, well, then I guess I'll just have to give you some of mine. I really believe this, folks. I believe the Bible teaches this, and I think as a... I've told you my... Did I tell you my story as a 17-year-old learning biblical counseling? I'll have to say that. Okay, I learned something about biblical counseling when I was 17. I think when I was 17 years old, God began to plant the seed that the Bible is sufficient. And I believe that doctrinally, and I still do. But now God has allowed me and many of you in this room to see that to be true. And so I have tons of hope. I don't have, I've not run into a situation in the last 10 years that I don't think God can help the person work through. Maybe 20, 30 years ago, I might have said, well, I don't know what to do. But I do believe God can help people work through this. And so you've got to assure them that hope and, and carry that hope. And I've told people, you, you seem to me very hopeless right now. Let me assure you, I've got more than enough hope for both of us. And just saying that, I'm not lying, I believe that. Does it require them to respond? Yeah, and that's going to be the point of challenge down the road. But initially, we can give that that hope. And then, of course, pray for the person. Pausing right there. One of the practices I keep encouraging my um, church members and our students, learn to pray in the hallways. Learn to pray before and after services. Can someone shares a problem area with you, and we'll get more practical. We'll do this, I think, on week five or week, week four or five. I get very practical on this, but I'll just introduce it now. How about after the Sunday morning ends and someone shares a problem? How about just saying, can we step over here? Can I just pray for you briefly? I really believe that God will work in answering those, answer those prayers. And then the last one here is Perseverance. Go the distance. Okay. Ministry is a marathon, not a sprint. The person doesn't show up, don't let go. If they cancel on you, give them a day, call them the next day. Don't let go. How many testimonies have you heard? And maybe some of you would give that testimony. 
I was giving up on the Lord at a certain point in my life. But it was the perseverance of a friend that God used to help me. I've heard those stories a lot. Okay. Let me uh, give you your assignment for, not for next week, because we're not meeting next week. But in two weeks from today, here's your assignment. It's not written anywhere, so you'll have to write it down. It's up on the screen for you. A couple passages to think about. And all these are passages that I'll be addressing in week three. So I'll give you a chance to write those down. The second thing, oh, I forgot to distribute that. Let's distribute it right now. Just take one of these if you would. Pass it around there. What's being passed around to you is what's called an observation worksheet. Those of you who've done precept ministries and probably other inductive Bible study ministries know what this is. This is a chapter of Scripture, Genesis 16, that I do use somewhat um, frequently. Situations like a person feel well, any forms of persons feeling mistreated or abandoned by others. That's the story of Hagar, Genesis 16. The instructions are real simple. Read through the passage once. Number two, read it a second time and note, and use whatever way to note you want if you're doing it on a computer. I'm going to ask if we can get this posted. So if you like an electronic version of this, um, I'll ask Pastor Nick if he can do that for us. I'll email him, send it to him. Or just use the paper version. Put a triangle, for example, just symbolizing God over every place you see the word God in your second read through, including the angel of the Lord in this passage. And then thirdly, read the passage a third time and underline each verb referring to God's actions. And that's what we'll camp on next week, or in two weeks. And then any applications, just note them on the back of the sheet or on a separate separate page. So it's self-explanatory, I think, the directions there. And then the third thing to do to prepare for the next week would be Welch's chapters 4 through 6. And when we come to that point in two weeks, we will have some opportunity for discussion on chapters 1 through 6. Can't take a lot of time on that. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that, but I'll, I'll at least make a few comments and let you make a few comments. Okay? So that's the assignment for the week three. Again, we're not meeting next week. Any questions that you all have? Thanks for letting me go over time today. I want to pray for us. Yeah, please, go ahead. No, is there a attendance sheet? That we um, no, you don't do it. We want one. There should be one. Yes. Here's your attendance sheet. And in fact, we could, if there's an extra one of these, let's set one in the back too. So you guys will be here for a while. And if you want to write on a piece of paper, I was here. Just leave it in the stack, and uh, we'll let we'll let Nick figure all that out. 
that compassion on it? I'm not sure. <laughs> Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much that we can be together. And I, I'm so encouraged when I see uh, sisters and brothers here, part of a solid church, who want to grow in their care for one another and their care for others in the body here. Thank you for a church with this commitment. Thank you for leadership that wants to see this happen. And we pray that you would make us effective, even even this week and even in the coming weeks as we begin to apply the things that we're learning. Guide us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen.